Infinite Horrors Podcast. And that's why it kind of looks like a Jim Henson puppet, because the people that worked for him worked on it. Yeah, I would love to see Kermit summoning the Cenobites. <laughs> Sam. Maya. We get to talk about Hellraiser. Your favorite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in case you can't tell, I'm I'm literally in a sing-song state about it. I read up, because I'd read it a while ago, but I touched up the novel. The knowledge of Hellbound Heart, too. Yeah. Dude, yeah. I read it so long ago. So I was like trying to skim through it because, you know, I genuinely don't have time i did the same thing i couldn't read 160 pages in a, a few couple days. days yeah well <laughs> right <laughs> I, on my i really could have but i had to get in comments to my reviewers on my first publication for my work so oh, congratulations it's so it, cool it's we're we're getting there it hasn't been yeah. submitted to be published yet but you know it's it's a pretty hefty one i think yeah. the document i sent them is like 40 pages but i got all my comments back from reviewers so uh-huh. we're getting there so had to focus on that but oh man i forgot how much i love clive barker he's a talent i remember being kind of like oh yeah no this is this is good horror. But now I'm like rereading it and I think it's been a few years. So now I'm like, oh, oh shit. No, this man. He's such a good writer. This man's descriptions. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Very visceral. Very like squishy. (laughs) Very body horror. And you know, when I was going through and because, okay, don't judge me. I've been listening to like really long five-hour retroactive analyses of Silent Hill, the video games lately, because I've just been interested in it while I do work, because it's something that I can listen to. Yeah. Kind of like a radio show. And every time I was listening to them talk about creature design, I kept thinking, wow, this kind of feels like it was slightly influenced by Clive Barker's body horror style. For sure. All the chains and hooks. But just the transfiguration of human bodies, you know? Yes. The slaughterhouse feel of the of the environment. Oh, it's so good. They're very similar atmospheres, which I, I really like because they're both, you know, really enduring horror masterpieces. Oh, yeah. And like has like these such iconic figures too. like Pyramid Head is such a such a cool little interdimensional demon. And that has, that both, has a lot of uh, pinhead parallels. Well, both are priests. Of like some religious demonic aspect of, you know, it's a perversion of Catholicism, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. Um, I personally haven't read any of the comics, I don't think, which is, I know, like a really grievous sin when I claim that this is my favorite horror film and one of my favorite series. But I was thinking about it the last few days, and I think this is my single most watched horror movie is Hellraiser 87. Really? Yes. Wow. Also, cannot wait to get into the meat of the people who worked on this because, oh man, this is one of my favorite eras of cinema is like this part of the 80s. Mm -hmm. And there's so many links between people who worked on this and other movies I love. And when I was rewatching, now that I'm much more in tune with that aspect of cast and crew, I kept thinking, wow, this reminds me of XYZ. And then when I was doing research for this, I was happening upon a lot of people who 
worked on the things that they reminded me of. And I was like, okay, yeah, the influence is there. That's great. <laughs> Very cool. We'll definitely get into that. I mean, I, I, I guess yes. the plan today is to go over the original Hellraiser 1987, as well yes. as the remake that came out this year in 2022. I got some opinions. Got some, got some strong opinions. Just the first thing I want to say is Jamie Clayton did a good job despite the script. And if you don't like the new Pinhead solely because it's played by a woman and not just a woman, but a trans woman, then you're just transphobic. Also, Hellbound Heart makes it pretty clear that the Cenobites are uh, androgynous. Androgynous, yeah. Well, except for the one female that is very clearly, you know, trying to tempt Frank. The female Cenobite. That's pretty, but... But Pinhead, otherwise, Pinhead is like distinctly noted as having an airy feminine voice. And they've been like mutilated beyond gender. (laughs) Yeah, which I love. And, you know, Hellbound Heart and the comics and Hellraiser all have been heavily analyzed for queer subtext. Yeah, and that's actually a question I'd love to ask you about is how that kind of thing happens. I know we talked about before, like that Chatterer is, uh, is a gay icon. And it's like, yeah, that comes out more in the comics, which is why I can't really talk about it. Cause I, again, I haven't read the comics. Um, okay. But you know, in, in the movies and in maybe in the book, if I remember correctly, Chatter is actually a little German boy. Well, it, um, it, well yeah, I know we're going to do an episode on the second movie. Right? Yeah, so I, 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 I hesitate to get too into that. But right. Yeah, which is why I would have to go into the comics a little bit more to make a definitive aspect, but like a, an, a large overarching part of the, um, queer subtext is like the sense of otherness and like the guilt especially like with the catholic overtones and the catholicism of it being like very pleasure for pain the subversion of pleasure all of this Mm -hmm. and the sense of otherness which i think one could make that argument i don't think i know enough about clive's intentions to make a definitive statement but i would I would agree that you could definitely find queer subtext. And I think there's enough people in there that read into it that way that make adding like a gay couple and queer actors into the new Hellraiser like a pretty cool choice. And I do have some good things to say about it, but we'll get into the reasons that I think it's an overall weak remake. Mm -hmm. But I think we should start with for anyone who hasn't watched or read the Hellraiser story. First of all, my heart hurts a little bit if you haven't. Go watch um, it. It's, <laughs> go watch it. Don't turn off the podcast, but go watch it. I mean, we'll, we'll be spoiling some stuff, but you know, it's it's such a masterpiece that it doesn't really matter. Right. It's the journey, not the destination. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Would you like to start our little synopsis then and get the listeners into a little bit of context? Sure. Hellraiser is an adaptation of Clive Barker's novella, The Hellbound Heart. Essentially, the story centers around a father and daughter, Larry and Kirstie, and the father's brother, Frank, and also the father's second wife, Julia, who's the stepmother to Kirstie. And Frank is the uncle, right? And Frank is this libertine hedonist trying to uh, experience all there is to experience sexually. Well, I think not just that, just driven by lust and bored with right. mortal sensation. He's, exactly, right. Is that he's a bit of a sociopath and is and is looking to feel anything, is the sense that I get about this character. And is willing to, I mean, as we'll see later, do whatever he has to to get what he wants kind of guy. So he is given 
a puzzle box that's called the Lament Configuration. Actually, it is Le Marchand's box. Well, that's in the novella. That's true. I think generally it does get called that, but I don't think it has a name in the actual Hellraiser movie. I think that comes in later. I think Hellbound is like sure. one of the first times that we get names for those. Right. But Clive Barker is the screenplay writer and the director for Hellraiser 1, and he, I'm pretty sure he doesn't actually name the Cenobites in the movie, and I'm pretty sure he also does not name the puzzle box. I'm probably bringing in a lot of information from later movies. It's hard to keep track. With the, when you're so engrossed in the lore right. and like really love it, you're going to just forget things. But I think for this podcast, we should probably try to quarantine them a little bit. Yeah, you're right. Okay, I'll do my best. Well, no, it's it's just the only movie that was written and directed by Clive Barker and therefore right. supposedly canon and then also closest to his vision would be Hellraiser 1. Sure. Um, though I think when we do our, our Hellraiser 2 Hellbound episode, we'll have a lot to say about how true they are to Clive's visions. Yeah, because I think the second movie spiritually is a good successor to the first one. Yeah, no, they do a really good job, but this is not the episode for that. <laughs> for sure. Okay. So he gets this puzzle box and Mister uh, Frank, the libertine, he What's missed, your pleasure, Mr. Yeah. Cotton? <laughs> gets, gets this mysterious puzzle box that he's promised will offer him the experience he's looking for. And he opens this puzzle box and essentially becomes a prisoner of these interdimensional beings known as the Cenobites, who describe themselves as, you know, demons to some, angels to others. And they're members of the Order of the Gash. So they are right. religious figures that serve the Leviathan, which is right. a essentially something close to a interdimensional hellish being that we would consider the devil, but isn't. Right. And hell is kind of the other world that they open. And this other world is seemingly something that exists around us at all times that can be accessed by using the keys that come with solving the puzzle box. So Frank does this, traps himself, and then his wife and his daughter all move into the house where Frank had made this ceremony happen. And the father cuts himself while he's moving and his blood drips on the same spot where Frank had done this ceremony and the blood in this. Well, why don't we talk about it? Because this is one of my favorite moments in cinema history ever. There's a lot going on. You're right. It's a good. Well, it's okay. First of all, dissect for sure. Talking about the actual movie, as much as I don't think Clive Barker's the best director out there, I will give him credit for how well thought out his shots and sound is and whoever did the sound design the sound design oh, was so done bad. because uh going back a little bit i love the way that we slowly learn about the characters and how well clive barker doesn't really use words to describe exposition and character background and just focuses on shots memories and expressions mm -hmm. so the i think the actors were generally well directed i'm a little bit iffy on kirsty's deliveries but you know she's a very young woman in the 80s clive is not the best director <laughs> yeah i mean she fits that role perfectly that innocent sort of yeah like, she's a final girl she's an 80s final what's girl. happening um, to me 
Um, She has her moments, but Clive really gives us this character progression of Julia by showing us who she was in the past and how her facial expressions, demeanor, and words really change. You know, we learn slowly that she has a connection to Frank because when they find out he's living there and was squatting there, you know, we, one, get clues as to why Frank was contacting the Order of the Gash. We see that he's a very lustful individual. And then we see that she lingers over photos of him. And then we get to these memories of him coming home on her wedding night and seducing her. Are you going to let me in? Oh, I love that. (laughs) We see that, you know, when they have sex, it's spliced in with the sounds of Larry moving. And then when he cuts himself, he's... And he's grunting and he's, yeah. he's trying to move this bed up these stairs and like grunting and making like noises that parallel the sexual fantasy that his wife's having about his brother. Well, it's not a <laughs> fantasy. It's it's a memory, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a memory, right. But you know what I'm saying. But he cuts his hand and that scream coincides with Frank's orgasm, which then gives us a really organic way of coming in for like, of course, Julia would be reminiscing about her really lusted after love in the place that he was last there. So it makes sense why she's in the attic. It makes sense that Larry would come in running to her, clutching his bleeding hand. It makes sense that he would spill his blood on the floorboards. And I really love that everything is organically set up and makes sense. I'm saying this because of what I will say about Hellraiser 2022. (laughs) And then we get to the best fucking practical effects Ever, which when I was a teenager and I watched this for the first time, I shit you not, I paused it, rewound it, played it again, did that like 16 yeah, times because I was enamored. You want to know what happened? You want to know the story of that that scene? Go ahead. Okay, so we have some really fucking cool practical effects artists and animatronics artists. So Bob Keane spearheaded this. He's a really cool practical effects artist. He did work for Candyman. Nightbreed, The Neverending Story, The Dark Crystal, Alien, and a lot of the original trilogy of Star Wars. So a very well-cemented special effects designer and artist. And he came up with this whole idea. Originally, this wasn't going to happen because the house was the set. They didn't have a secondary set. And it's very clear that they're on a soundstage here because of the false floor and the underneath with those panning shots. And first of all, really fun fact, A lot of the special effects in this movie are condoms and lube. So condoms because it's sheet latex. That's so appropriate. (laughs) Yeah. Condoms because it's sheet latex, lube because they don't melt under lights, right? And everything needs to be wet. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) And that panning shot underneath the floorboards is a condom being inflated. Oh, for the beating for the heart. heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the only reason we get those really cool shots is because they initially only had had a set budget and then later got more funding because everybody saw the what was coming out of this and uh, everybody was like, no, this is fucking cool, guys. Right. So they actually gave them another injection of cash. And originally the animatronics experts working on this made prosthetic puppet animatronic that was coming out of the walls of Frank sort of being revived from the walls because, you know, when he contacted the Cenobites, they spent hours giving him an oversensation of pleasure and pain. And then he was splattered against the walls and slowly dried up. So the idea was like he'd start coming alive from those bits and like merge with the house a little bit. Uh-huh. And it was like a pup that would sink 
to what was being said, but they realized it was a little bit too complicated and wasn't really going to work very well. So then they used this new cache to come up with this scene, which is so fucking iconic, so happy it happened. But the only reason we could get the floorboards and the uh, methyl cellulose mucus coming up from the floorboards and everything is because they could finally get a soundstage and shoot all of this after the original shots right? and have a bunch of crew underneath the floorboards puppeteering and moving things. And a lot of the scene is actually wax. So what they did Mm -hmm. is they took a bunch of wax of different colors and different melting points, and they molded a ton of organs and body parts and then very clearly melted it and then did a reverse shot to get the the reformation. Oh, I love that. But the initial spinal column and arms that shoot up from under the floors and everything were actually animatronics, similar to the Thing's arms yeah, coming out. Say, in the, yeah. yeah, there's only one movie that really holds a candle in this sense to this movie, and it's uh, The Thing, you know. Yeah. The only other. So practical. It, they do the same thing, though. It's, it's too crew members underneath floorboards pushing a bunch of animatronic arms up from under the floor. Uh So it's the same process. And same with the methyl cellulose coming up, a bunch of people just pushing it up through the floorboards. And it's not lube, it is methyl cellulose, which is similar. It's a a binder. And they (laughs) coat this animatronic in that. They do all the reverse shots of the wax. The veins, that kind of slither up his arms and everything. Yeah, what is that? How do you do that? Colored thread. Wow. And then an added part part of the puppetry is for the larger chunks that come together, they were sculpted and then pulled away with wire, which is why they're a little bit different looking. And a lot of people will reference that Indiana Jones scene where the Nazi gets of course, yeah. They open they open the Ark of the Covenant and dissolve. Yes. Yeah. But that's actually different colored gelatin with different boiling points, not wax. So a little bit different. But I remember just being enamored by this and awesomely just one of the best practical effects I've ever seen. It's really quite cool. I would love to figure out how to do that on my own. <laughs> I mean, it's very easy. I'm, if you, okay, next time I'm in LA, we'll get together and just spend days that doing this. <laughs> would be a dream, Maya. That would be Let's do a it. dream to do something like that. <laughs> but also another thing to mention here is I don't know if you've ever noticed that Frank talks funny when he is his monster half-human self. He's an actor, right? So he is dubbed, and it's because Oliver Smith is actually being put in makeup here. Right. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's a different actor in in like the skin suit, essentially. Or the it's is it makeup? Like you probably know exactly what it is. Well yeah, so it's a they did a lot of full body prosthetics, Uh but Oliver Smith was much skinnier and therefore they could build makeup on him better. Yes. And I will say I do think it's weird that they chose to dub over in Frank's voice here, but not when he's wearing Larry's skin. Because why would he have Larry's voice at that point? Like, I know it's the same actor and everything, but like, why wouldn't you also dub over his voice? Anyway, that's one of my criticisms. Whatever, dude, man. (laughs) But I really like this. Another thing that I'll say is 
they had some, I think we should just get into the practical effects crew real fast now that we're okay. talking about it. Well, this is, because, this is not anything I'm like, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about it. Honestly, I, this is not what I know about. Oh my God. Wait until you hear the people who have worked on this. So go ahead. Who I have been in love with since I was a teenager. These are the guys that made me want to understand how practical effects worked. Also, Practical effects are synonymous with Hellraiser, which is something I'm also mentioning when it comes to Hellraiser 2022. Yeah. (laughs) I have a. Okay. Before we get further, I will say that I think Hellraiser 2022 is written by people who don't really fully understand Clive Barker, don't fully understand Hellraiser, and kind of just wanted a modern horror slasher with its name. I don't feel like they respect a lot of what originally was created i mean this is this is the name of the game these days in the in, it's, in the movie it's really industry. sad and yeah. i'm it's like people, we'll, we'll get into people it who make comic book movies who clearly have never read a comic book you know it's yeah it, yeah ip is just this veneer that people use to put butts in seats to no and it's really sad stories. because i follow a lot of the practical effects workers that did the initial sculpting And like I was seeing behind the scenes crafting of this and I was getting kind of excited because they do really good work. But we'll get into that, too, because I have more to say about that. Mm -hmm. But the original practical effects team was just filled with superstars. And like I love 80s horror. I love the bright red blood era. I love the texture that comes with the practical effects here. And I think it adds a lot. Like even when we see like Frank's face being rejoined in the first scene. Yeah, you can tell those aren't real eyes, but they still serve with the slight bend of the flesh and they still nail in a way that's like Mm -hmm. really visceral and they still get the point across. And the way that the hooks in those like close-up shots pull away at the fake flesh is still visceral. Yeah. And it's so good. And I love the like up close score. And I love this like world building of spinning totems covered in nailed and like marred flesh. So what is that? Is that, you know, the spinning totem? Is that a yeah. Cenobite? No, it's just part of the world, like the chains. Okay. So the original four Cenobites, discounting the engineer for now, because right. the engineer is kind of separate. Uh-huh. In the movies, Clive depicts the engineer more of a different creature than the Cenobites, but in the novel, they're more akin to a Cenobite. Right. And speaking of the engineer, so for all those who know the movie, the engineer is the thing that Kirsty first sees when she's in the hospital and summons the other world, right? It's that giant, freaky, flesh-colored, insect-like, worm, scorpion-tailed like headed worm. wormy thing that chases yeah. her down the hallway, right? You want to know why that scene makes you think of Labyrinth? Not well, just because... <laughs> oh, it makes but, me yes. think of Labyrinth. The puppeteering <laughs> okay. is very similar. The The stone walls remind me a lot of Labyrinth. Labyrinth what came out in 1986. This came out in 1987. Okay. Also, what is it with movies taking brown, curly-haired teenage leads and putting them in white peasant shirts? Why is that like what a are, common What are some thing? other examples I'd love to hear? Literally Labyrinth. What? <laughs> Um, I'm pretty, I would also, I think, I think Nightmare on Elm Street has that at some point. Oh, too. Well, these like are all they, 80s movies. We're like big. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. Hair. There's like this like, weird trend. Having like, <laughs> anyway. having like big brown curly hair was in. And then, you know, the whole pe- like big white 
peasant shirt. It's yeah, it's like innocence and whatnot. And anyway, yes. Anyway, but okay. So not only do we just talk about Bob Keane being involved with Jim Henson's Dark Crystal, mm. who was a big designer, we also have drum roll, please, Jim Sandis. Who's this? You may not know him by name, but he worked on The Fifth Element. A lot of the new Star Wars and then the Harry Potter series of movies and a lot of other Disney. I think Maleficent was one of them. He worked on The Mummy. He worked on Gladiator. He worked on The Witches. He worked on The Little Shop of Horrors. Are we talking Brendan Fraser Mummy? Yeah, Brendan Fraser Mummy. Thank God. Tom Tom Cruise Mummy is no mummy I want. (laughs) But more importantly, he worked on The Labyrinth and Jim Henson's Creature Shop. And he's an animatronics designer and builder. So despite not being able to find a definitive answer of who designed and built the engineer, my best guess is it is Jim Sandis because of his history, because of his expertise, and because of what he he worked on. And in conjunction with that, I think that he was also working with Jason Reed, who was another animatronics designer. And he did a lot of work for the Burton Sleepy Hollow. He also worked on Harry Potter. He did Tomb Raider. He also worked on The Mummy in the Little Shop of Horrors. But these are two like really big, iconic names in animatronics. Right. And then I think he was then helped a little bit by Bob Keane and Ian Rolfe. Ian Rolfe also worked on The Labyrinth. You're going to love him when I tell you what he did. Okay. You know who he created? Who? The Little Worm. Oh, The Little Worm? everyone's favorite creature in the labyrinth i don't i i know i'm generalizing but everybody loves the worm that is an iconic character i gotta be up front with you here maya i um i've never seen the labyrinth oh man okay well i love i love the animatronics and the world building i I know i know it's one of these seminal movies it's it's bad it's not a good movie it's weird the acting is and writing is a little weird but you watch it because it is a nostalgic b has like pretty right. good music from David Bowie. It's meant for kids, right? It's like kids David Bowie music. And then also Baby of the Baby. What baby? Like I know the yeah. music. But also Jim Henson's puppetry is like the main reason that I love it. That's that's the but draw. These yeah. are animatronics and puppetry as- experts that worked on the labyrinth. So when I say that something's really invoked like labyrinth energy to me, that that's, makes that's sense. That's what you yeah. mean. Right. It makes so sense. So the engineer is right? a big cool. Part of that. And that's why it kind of looks like a Jim Henson puppet, because the people that worked for him worked on it. I would love to see Kermit summoning the Cenobites. (laughs) (laughs) Or really, it wouldn't be Kermit. It would probably be... I feel like Kermit would be the priest. Ooh, Miss Piggy would be a great Julia. They could remake Hellraiser with Muppets. They could. I'm sure somebody (laughs) has out there. It's the internet. But also a good thing to mention here is Simon Sace, who created the original Puzzle Box prop. Oh, so cool. Yeah. What else have they done? Um, um, that was really all I could find on him, if I'm being honest. He didn't seem to have like the largest filmography. Mm-hmm. I think he's worked like on a little bit of B-horror and stuff going back. But like this was this was like the thing that everybody knows him for is making the original Puzzle Box. And how does the Puzzle Box work? Do you know? Because looks, I think it's just... That- a series of like really simple mechanisms. It's not anything mm-hmm. like the the newest iterations that like move oh, crazy. God. I think the ones yeah. in Hellbound are separate models of different configurations. Uh-huh. Um, but here it just kind of looks like some prop that has moving capabilities. 
I don't know too much about the prop building if I'm if I'm honest. There's not that much to it. I know that there was a limited release of a documentary called Leviathan, The Making of Hellraiser and Hellbound. Mm -hmm. It's no longer available on DVD and I can't find it anywhere. So I've watched little clips, which is how I found information on the reformation of Uncle Frank. But I would love to watch that and know more about that. And for any listeners who are really interested, if you can find a copy and you are also really nerding out about this, like I always do, please go watch it if you have the opportunity. But yeah, just a powerhouse of practical and special effects. And like the original Cenobites, obviously very close to Clive Barker's original view of them in the novel because he was working on them. And I really love the designs. I really do. They're so cool. Yeah. I love the blue skin. The butcher gear. They're all wearing like the heavy leather. That's another thing I really appreciate. So as much as I really love in the new movie I, I do i do really love the redesign of the um cenobites the person who did the concept art for the new cenobites is named keith thompson and his art fantastic love that i love that he brought in the pubic mutilation yes. from the books i love that he brought in the original jewel headed right um, right that the, sort of right uh, the pins, pins and pinheads face yeah. and jewels Oddly, Pinhead never has a tattooed grid. It's yeah. always cut, which is an interesting change that everyone makes. I don't mind it. Like, the Cenobites are something I don't really mind being different. The only thing that I really dislike is the flesh tones work well in the art. The flesh tones don't work well in the movie. For, to me, it reminded me of, like, Power Ranger armor. <laughs> well, okay, so my my concerns are, one, the lighting and cinematic design of 2022 is really poor and takes away from any practical effects Two, they cover everything with cgi that looks terrible and three mm. the the skin skirt for pinhead while i really like the concept art for it looks just like latex in yeah. the design when it's actuated and like yeah the idea is cool but you know this would be a good way to like get the skirt in is to have the material sewn into their bodies like the book mentions right like clearly right, the right. artists were inspired by the book also the flesh tones look really fake and i think that was kind of a thing that detracted from it um it, because if you look at the behind the scenes applications it looks like they're wearing prosthetics and that's one because of the lack of luby texture that covers a lot of those little mistakes and distracts from them but two i think when you have blue skin and very wet muscle that kind of also helps hide things the flesh tones kind of made it look like they're wearing latex and then mm -hmm. all of that gets covered up with CGI that makes it look worse, in my opinion, because everything yeah. just like moves really unnaturally and is really jarring. And then also like, I don't know, the charm of the texture, grotesque nature of the wounds is kind of lost. Also, the way that skin was being pulled didn't look as torturous to me like i the only design i really hated in 2022 was chatterer i think they made chatterer yeah they really did chatterer dirty in that movie didn't they like yeah. on 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 a lot of fronts yeah. not just the character design but you know spoiler alert they fucking kill chatterer yeah which <laughs> doesn't really make sense and another thing i want to bring up right now is if you're entrenched in the lore of hellraiser you understand that this is a religious pilgrimage, right? When you get the box, not only do, do you have to spend months finding it, you have to have an intent. You need 
the intent to open the box. This is something that's explored more in Hellbound, where the intent is what summons them, as well as the opening. Right. They won't come after the person who has been coerced into opening a box. They will come after the person who wants to summon them. Yeah, and not just that, like the Cenobites even like give them an out at the end. The Cenobites like, hey, Frank, listen, man. You don't got to do this if you really don't want to. There's no going back yeah. once you decide to go forward. Because and they're Frank's servants. Like, Frank's like, fuck yeah, no, let's no, do this. These are choices. These There are intent and there is a religious forcing behind this. They are called the Order of the Gash because they are religious sentinels, essentially. They, they are servants to whoever are like is summoning them. Right. They require consent and invitation in the book. Mm -hmm. But the movie kind of does the same. I really like the original Hellraiser because the puzzle box scenes are cut in a way that also suggests that it takes hours and hours to figure out how the puzzle box works, which is something I like in the book. And it's enticing, right? She touches it a little bit and these little like pink fairy things pop out. It makes the the whole process of unlocking this puzzle seem way more involved and and enticing to to whoever's trying to figure it out. Where like 2022 fails because they really just destroy the actual ritual of the box. They make it like a bloodthirsty thing. Well, they turn it into a jump scare. The box never harms the user directly. It never requires a blood sacrifice. And the Cenobites are reduced into this one-dimensional touch it, we come after you and kill you, ha ha ha, kind of creature. Yeah, it's like a ring, you it's, know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's really it's, sad. To your earlier point, they don't really understand the function of a Cenobite or what a Cenobite is. You no, know? They, they clearly don't understand or don't care to understand the lore, and that's why it feels disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the writers have some of the shittiest dialogue decisions I've I've seen and kept a lot of stupid scenes that make no sense and i don't think they fully understood the plot lines they were creating but again i'm gonna get into this later um another thing that like hellraiser one does really well is they got motherfucking christopher young to do the fucking sound and music right oh man i love christopher there's young. some great i mean i love him. again that one scene we talked about earlier when larry is moving the bed up the staircase the sound of his blood hitting like well first of all the sound of the of the nail scraping against his hand yep and then the sound of that mixed with Frank orgasming in Julia's uh, memory. Yeah. And then the blood falling to this wooden floor and just like wetly plopping yeah. into a puddle of more blood is perfect. It's such a good... The sound of the maggots, the sound of the flies in Kirsty's dream, all of these sound... Dis- the, the very distinct lack of music and sound during the last chase. Right. All of these are really well thought out sound editing designs, but Christopher Young's music is immediately tone setting, immediately recognizable. Every time I hear the opening credits with his opening theme, I get such tingles of excitement and nostalgia because it's such a solid theme. And like whoever composed for, I think Ben Lovett is the guy who composed for 2022. Mm-hmm. He added some original themes that Christopher Young had in the first two movies, but I really don't like the rest of the work he did. And whoever did the sound editing kept adding those like obnoxious blomps that come up with like modern horror that I think are cheap and stupid and don't really mm-hmm. do much except make me angry. But going back to Christopher Young, we know him from the Twilight Zone and Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and 
oh my god, one of my favorite sort of campy horror movies, Trick or Treat, not Trick or Treat, Trick or or Treat from 86. It's that movie where a bunch of kids summon a dead rock star by playing his record backwards, and then he comes back from the dead. (laughs) I love it. Oh, I've never seen that one. Oh, God. You have to watch it. Okay. We should do an episode on it sometime. It's it's camp. Mm. He did Flowers in the Attic, which, you know, I really oh, like. Oh, we were talking about that the other day. Oh, yeah. I just reread, like, all the novels. All of them. For the most part. The Grudge 1 and 2, he did the scores for. The American versions, or? I think, well, I don't know if they had separate composers for the movies, if I'm honest. I know that he worked on mm. Grudge 1 and 2, and considering the titles in English, I'm guessing... It was sure. Yeah, it's not Jew on. Yeah, yeah sure. if not yeah. both versions, then definitely the English version. Um, he mm-hmm. did the music for Ghost Rider. He did the music for Pet Cemetery 2019, and he did the music for the recent uh, Del Toro Cabinet of Curiosities. This is a man who knows how to set a mood and how to like match things. And one of my favorite aspects of this, which is probably directed directly from Barker, is the music box because Le Marchand mm-hmm. made musical bird mechanisms and that's why when you open the box there is a compounding music box theme that leads to the sounds of the other world and it's a slow transition and i love the subtle way it's incorporated into the very score itself and then if you re-listen to those parts you can hear the way that the melody of the music box gets more and more complex just like the books it has such an attention to detail oh my god i love it i love christopher young you love this movie so much. It is so much fun talking to you about it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know I'm like dominating the conversation a little bit. No, there is nothing to apologize for. Uh, like I am more than happy just to be here to learn from you and listen. Because I've, I've loved these movies forever. You know, like, I mean, Pinhead is obviously in that when you think about 80s horror, it's like Pinhead, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, Jason. Oh, Doug Bradley, uh, man. I will... I love Doug Bradley, but also really commend him for supporting uh, Jamie Clayton in response to all the transphobia she was getting in the new movie. Oh, man. We saw how the world reacted to a black Ariel. Are we surprised no. that people are going to be mad that Pinhead is played by a trans woman? No. no. It's absurd. So <laughs> it, it is a stupid reason to hate a movie. I think the failings of the movie were not really on the actors here. I think the actors were fine. I think they did fine. Mm. I think the script and the direction was just really bad. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's parts of it, like some characters, like there's that poor person who just her first line in the movie is like, hey, I'm the roommate. And you're just like, oh, well, <laughs> she's, oh, she's going to get ripped but apart also, by chains in like 10 minutes. There are dialogue choices that should be thoughts <laughs> and don't need to be there. The main tenet of screenwriting is, you know, show, don't tell. So Well, this is why I'm trying to br- bring attention to the differences in the choices made in Hellraiser 1 versus 2022 to show why Hellraiser 1 is so immortal. Today's episode of the Infinite Horrors podcast is brought to you by Exalted Funeral, the one-stop shop for all your imaginative needs. At Exalted Funeral, you can pick up the latest issue of Infinite Worlds, Infinite Horrors, or any other zines available to satisfy your otherworldly and gruesome desires. Yes, and for all you tabletop adventurers tuning in, take your next campaign to the darkest reaches of the mind with Exalted Funeral's rich variety of dark fantasy, horror, and occult-based scenarios. 
And don't forget to check out their merch. Make your outsides as weird as your insides with their selection of shirts, sweaters, and even custom dice. All this and more can be found at exaltedfuneral.com. Follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Exalted Funeral, all one word. And be sure to sign on to their mailing list to stay up to date on new releases, restocks, and other news. Thanks again to Exalted Funeral for sponsoring this episode. I'd love to get your opinion on... Oh, I love giving opinions. <laughs> the original Hellraiser is a fairly honest and uh, accurate portrayal of the novella, save for one thing, yes. right? And that's that Kirsty is the daughter in the movie, but the friend in the novella. And I'd love to know why you think uh, they made that change for the movie. Yeah, if I'm honest, I've like barely remember her relationship in the in the book i think part of it is having young women as like last girls in the 80s i think another part of it is driving home the creepiness of uncle frank and solidifying uncle <laughs> frank the incest angle yeah i mean it's it's that i think Come i to think daddy Ugh. <laughs> I think the fact that the story is contained within one house over time kind of adds to that too. Like having it be insular, like the house, making it a family and making it something that corrupts a family, I think is well done. I think these were creative choices that Barker made conscious of what audiences going to a movie in 87 mm -hmm. would uh, like react well to. And I think... They make sense for translating the story, which is much more complex and detailed, to a somewhat simpler, easier to interpret movie. Because I think having the relationship between Julia and Frank is the focus. And I think having an immediately recognizable relationship between Larry and Kirsty is also something that benefits the movie. Also, I think it makes more sense as a motivation. Why would Friend with Benefits want to save you from hell? Like a daughter oh, would more really likely. <laughs> right? <laughs> a daughter makes more sense though, you know? Sure. Can we talk about the new one? Okay, you know what? You know We're what? getting into yeah, it. Let's just pile right into the new one. <laughs> Too long, ready. you're getting bored of us. Hellraiser 1 is great. The creative choices are really great. We'll probably get back into it as we make comparisons because I have right. like 10 pages of notes from watching both of them again. <laughs> oh my God, I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate it so much. Yeah. So the people who wrote 2022 were Ben Collins, Luke Piotrowski, and David Goyer. People I have not heard of. They seemingly write together and have written like three and movies. I think they worked on The Ritual. Hold on. I will say, so I am I am quite a fan of Super Dark Times. Oh, I've never seen it. It's it's very good. Um, <laughs> I'll say that these writers are pretty good. Eh, not from what I've seen here. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But but here's the thing, right? Is that it, this... Like, I, did, I had neutral feelings about The Ritual, which I know they worked on. The Ritual, which uh, is that... It's like a boy's night out, but they're all remembering their dead friend and then shit kind of goes awry oh, in the woods. Oh, yes, based off of the Adam Neville book. Right. Yeah, so I've yeah. read the book, but I have not seen the movie. I have not read the book. Oh, the, well, so. the book, you know, the book is some just like classic English folk horror, but set in Ooh. Scandinavia. 
you know. I would definitely read that and you should watch Good. the movie and then we can talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the other stuff like, the, uh, you know, the writers also did The Night House, which is a very good examination of grief and just a great horror movie. Rebecca Hall. It's like a it's like a one woman show with Rebecca Hall as this drunk, grieving widow in a house that her husband had built for them. It's okay. very good. So here's what I'll say is that the Hellraiser 2022 writers, they're not bad. They, they've made some great stuff. But they just didn't give a shit about this. <laughs> well, I, I always wonder, like, you know, it's David Bruckner directed it and they work a lot together. Like, I know that he yeah. also did The Night House. And it's the just ritual. That Hellraiser is like an institution. But it's not even that. I mean, it, there are so many fundamental misunderstandings of the lore and the source and the motivations, but then also really rudimentary mistakes in writing that make me that like granted this is the only thing I've really consumed by these writers. So this is what I'm going off of, but like sure. things that don't make sense that just should have been cut, that should not have been in a script, and script mistakes that make me feel like I'm watching a student writing things, you know? (laughs) I'm sorry, like, I'm sure they've made great works, but if we're judging solely off of Hellraiser 2022, this feels like a first draft that nobody wanted to write and just kind of said, fuck it, we have money, make it. Oh, I mean, that I'm sure that's what happened. But what are what are some of these uh, writing mistakes that... Um... The really shitty dialogue that should not have been in there. Sure. The fact that the character motivations are confused, the fact that the lore is confused, the fact that they have a baddie that we never get to fucking see, the fact that the first opening scene could have been cut because it doesn't play into the rest of the fucking story. The fact that we have no background for any of these characters save, like, Riley to an extent. That first scene is such a classic, like, you know, I mean, all horror movies these days start with some non sequitur, like, it's like it follows, it begins with a girl getting killed. No, but I mean the first scene with the money. Oh, uh, yeah. See, you don't even remember it. It has no business being there. Oh, I thought the first scene, like the kid in the at the party. No, but also, I have issues with that too. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't care that it's a setter, right? No, I don't care about that. I'm fine with Joey getting killed. Whatever. One weird acting choices by that character. I play it up as like bad direction. Sure. But like, I'm mad that we don't have Voight as a big character. Like, you can't introduce somebody who is driving this and then ignore him for the majority of the film. I'm sorry. I don't like that. There's, this is, okay. What happens in Hellraiser 2022? The reason I'm so fucking mad about it, right? We just get thrown into shit without any understanding or context. We have, oh no, Baddie has puzzle box. Why does he have puzzle box? We don't care. We don't know. Somebody gets killed. We immediately jump to the rest of the story. I hate that. And then, We get Riley fucking somebody, and then, like, we see that she has issues with her brother. Honestly, I kind of like the writing between her talking to her brother and their relationship. I think that's pretty natural. I think that's okay. I really like their conversations. That's where good movies and, like, Hellraiser, the first movie, succeeded, is that at its core, it's this story about a woman who's cheating on her husband. Right. Okay, so Riley, I don't think is a good character as it's introduced to the story. I I like Riley as a character. I think she's a fine, flawed lead. The thing I don't like is how she's involved. 
Okay. Again, we're coming up to fundamental misunderstandings of how the order of the gash works. Mm -hmm. I say this like my my degrees in historical lore of supernatural beings. Like, okay. But um, we learn later that Trevor's being controlled by Voight, whatever. But this is not fucking set up for us, which I'm mad about. We just see Riley randomly take the puzzle box and start hurting people. But one, the puzzle box should not be taking sacrifices of blood. Two, the puzzle box should not be randomly killing people. It has intent. The order of the gash has intent. This reduces the order of the gash to having no fucking personality and no lore. And I hate it so much. But like Riley has no intent. She has no intent to summon the order. Therefore, the box should not be working for her. She is not spending hours for her. Isn't the whole point of the first movie is that Kirsty has no intent, right? She just accidentally opens the box. And but she spends she... hours and hours working on it. Seemingly, Riley can do it within five minutes and immediately get to a new configuration. Mm. Usually configurations only really happen when you spend hours and hours on them because that's where the intent comes in. Like even Kirsty had the intent to solve the puzzle box, right? To some level, yeah, we see that in Riley, but it's not explored enough for me to believe it. Mm-hmm. And then going forwards, the main driver is that Matt gets taken. We don't really see it, and there's no real reason for it. I don't like the motivations for how people are getting taken. What should have happened, in my opinion, is we should have gotten background into Voight learned why he's power hungry, why he's going after people. We should have gotten a little bit more into the backstory of what happened the first time. He's like the Frank, right? No, 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 he's not. He's like the doctor. Hmm. He's not Frank. Frank is different. Voight is a mastermind who spends years Ah. planning this out. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Why don't we see his years of planning? Why don't we see his manipulations? Why do we just randomly see Riley being klutzy and causing all these by accident. Why don't we see him masterminding Trevor and her and working them? And why don't we see him coming up with his mechanisms for keeping the Cenobites out? Why don't we see him devising an architectural version of a puzzle box? Because of the reveal, right? But it wouldn't ruin that. The reveal was corny. Okay? Like, it's sure. it sucks, man. Like, I really... The whole interesting part of the Doctor... because. We learned that uh, Voight wants to ascend in in the same way that the Doctor does, because they both want to meet the Leviathan. They both want to gain power, which is what they're going to ask for. I want to get the motivation behind that. I want the establishment of that character, which I never really get. I just kind of get hints to it, and that annoys me. And then I really want to see the work that he put in. I think that would have been cool lore building, is bringing not just Le Marchand's engineering but why can't we see that this man is so power hungry and so rich that he figures out a way to use similar configurations to build his house that's interesting to me i'm really upset we don't get to see that and then his intent is the one that summons them but like why is matt taken it is so fast it is so random what i would have liked to see is voight again pulling the strings and like him causing Matt to be taken? What if he slowly tortures Matt? What if we see this like emotional pull? What if that's the call to to action? Not just a random, oh, I'm drugged out, accidentally hurt my brother. My brother is just taken off screen. Now I have to go find him. Also, he's the third person. It takes three people of this random blood sacrifice to even get us to the call to action. 
and then she cares. And then the motivation finally makes sense, right? Why can't we get Voight orchestrating this and making her try to then understand the box and get him back? That would be such a small fix that would make it so much more cohesive to me. I do understand what you're saying. One thing I didn't like about the movie is that implies that like he's tricking the Cenobites somehow into doing his bidding. I don't really get that so much as the Cenobites are inherently not working as the Gash, right? Like, Hmm. again, the Order of the Gash are a religious order. They are there to be apathetic. They're there because... People work really fucking hard to summon them. They don't come as easily as they are coming in this movie. I think this does them a great disservice. Honestly, the only time that I actually like them is when we get towards the end and we start getting some decent dialogue. I still don't really love the dialogue, but like, eh, okay dialogue from Pinhead. Yeah. Okay, you know what I fucking hate is shit like... Oh, yes, from Pinhead. Like, we have such sights to show... Just say we have such sights to show you. They should uh-huh. not well, be they gotta showing. gotta say the line, right? Yes, I mean, yes, but the oh know. yes makes it so much like cornier to me. Like yeah. bad writing choice. Also, the desperation that they convey in the way they're written and directed to cause pain is not something that is present in Clive's creations. Again, they're like entirely apathetic, and they're servants to the people who summon them. So in this case, Voight and Rye, right? The way that they work is you create an altar and a ritual and you summon them and then they come to you and they ask you what you want they need consent and invitation to take you and give you what you want because this is a long religious pilgrimage towards the leviathan and its power right and we're not getting that at all no, no. That's been ripped out of the story. I really hate it's, that. It's a little too much for, for folks to soak in, you know? And that's not even made absolutely clear in the first movie. You know what I mean? All this lore building would be a whole lot of exposition to shove into a movie that's already trying to do so much with two hours of time. You but know that's what I mean? the problem. They chose so badly. They added scenes that don't add anything to the characters or the plot. They could have cut out the very first money scene. That makes no goddamn sense. They have the scene where we're just watching banter between Trevor and the roommate character over the drinks. Could have been cut. The thing I really appreciate about like the original Hellraiser is we get story, we get character motivations, but we don't get filler. You know, like it's it's all very precise, exacting, and moves the plot along at a pace that makes sense. In my notes, I have, you know what? Maybe they did do a good job because I feel like every nerve of my being is being tortured by the order of the gash. Maybe (laughs) this is the actual hell they're trying to convey for two goddamn hours. And it's, it sucks. I hate it. I, I know I'm, so I'm listening to you. I'm listening to you talk about this movie, and it, it's like your best friend has like left you and joined the popular girls. <laughs> you know, it's awful. It's devastating when something you love like this is sort of just haphazardly trying to throw something together. It just it to me 
it's very clear that there wasn't thought that went into this. There's thought that went into the character designs and the Cenobite designs and the building of the prosthetics. I will say that. I think those crew members did a fantastic job. The artists did a fantastic job. It's not their fault that it got fucked over by CGI direction, right? Sure. The only thing that I really don't like in the Cenobite designs besides Chatterer is we see Voight when he finally ascends to become a Cenobite. Mm-hmm. One, sad we don't get to see the engineer because the engineer is the one that turns the Cenobites from human into Cenobites. Yes, right. Which is kind of shitty because if we're just adding Cenobites willy-nilly instead of like the original four, if we're talking about the original Hellraiser, why don't you have a big reveal for the engineer? You have such a fucking opportunity to create something so cool for that. Well, you know they're going to make a sequel. <laughs> you know i refuse dude i oh, will not gonna. watch that oh, you best believe it i will burn something i am so mad about no, that <laughs> no. oh you best like this is just the beginning please god no we're gonna reach the the outer limits of experience together okay i'm gonna summon the order of the gash and my wish will be that for that to not happen i will oh. gladly be strung up for that <laughs> but okay so the cenobite design for voight i don't like because He has a fascination with angels. He has a fascination with power. My first thought would be because Cenobites are transfigurations of the humans in what makes sense for their desires and what drives them to become mutilated and perverted versions of themselves. You know, a good example, again, because the best allegory for this is the doctor in Hellbound. You know, he becomes like this crazy animatronic doctor, right? His desires get shown in his transfiguration Uh why do we see such a basic transfiguration for void my first thought i'm looking at it now just like his cheeks are spread apart yeah and it it also looks bad because of the cgi my first thought for how i would design him would be to flay the skin on his back and make wings that are held up by wire Mm. because of his fascination with thinking that they're angels and wanting to become one right Interesting. You think he should have been mutilated to look more like an angel? Yes, because nothing about his transfiguration matches the reason that he's perverted as a character, Ah, which is the whole point. So what what, what would be Pinhead's explanation there? I don't remember his backstory. And again, this is not shit you get in the original Hellraiser. No, you have to read the books and the comics. They do allude to it in the second movie in Hellbound. Yeah, they kind of do. Because then they go into the backstories. He's like an English military officer. Yeah. Right. A big reason that, you know, Frank just gets ripped apart is because he asks for sensation because nothing he does sexually is ever enough. And he gets overwhelmed with sensations to the point where the ultimate sensation is being torn apart, right? And every fiber of his being is feeling something different. So that makes sense. Uh You know, a good example is the female pinhead that also seems to have similar leanings to Frank, but ended up choosing power or becoming a Cenobite. And, you know, a big aspect of her is genital mutilation. That makes sense. Yeah. Stuff like that. I think something about Chatterer ended up having to do with something he was saying or or something. I'm not, I don't remember at this point. But like in the lore, what is established is that when we see a transfiguration in the movies, they are directly related to what drives you to contact the Order. And we don't get that Mm -hmm. with Voight. Again, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the lore and the reasons why these things happen. I don't see a motivation for the characters to be 
hear the fucking twist ending of like Trevor was in it all the time should have been done better. <laughs> I think it would have been more powerful. Also, you could see it from a fucking mile away. I will say that. Well, yeah, because if you're scared of the puzzle box, you're going to know about it. That's like a very obvious hint. But I think it right. would have been more powerful of a story if we saw Voight the whole time, if we saw him working behind the scenes, because he's the one with the intent to summon them. He's the one who it is twist ending revealed that kind of orchestrated this because he hired Trevor, right? Yeah. But uh, there are a few things here. One, I don't like the fact that Voight is alive in the real world. He should be in hell because if you contact the order and you are given sensation, you are stuck in hell. Again, canon. Well, he is in his own little hell. He's having his nerves ripped out of his body. <laughs> he's living in the real world. He's not sure, stuck in hell. He's not like Frank, Frank does escape. And so does Which is so what's does supposed Julia to happen in the second one, right? It's Yes. It's like he is he is in his own personal hell, I think. But he's he should be dragged there and kept by the Cenobites because the Cenobites don't like people escaping them. And that includes being alive in the real world. Mm -hmm. That is what has canonically been put down by Barker. So I don't like the fact that we don't get an explanation for that. That's a little bit weak. I also don't like the fact that he's just kind of used as a way to explain away things. I also think that the fact that Trevor is kind of a twist ending is another cop out. Because again, it would have been stronger to have this manipulation set up in a way that the viewers know and the characters do not know kind of situation where we see the slow workings of manipulation. And then that way we feel more and more emotionally attached to Rye. Right now, she's a fucking stupid character who has no motivation until halfway through the movie. And then I get the motivation. Well, what it is, is that she's just like kind of a leaf in the wind that's been caught in this big Yeah, but that's not expressed to us until halfway through the movie and the twist ending. Yeah. Which is what I take a problem with like the ideas are there they're not executed well hmm. so if we had the overarching knowledge of seeing these characters being manipulated it would have been stronger these are a bunch of two-dimensional characters that just kind of interact randomly the only thing that i really like as a detail is colin is initially ignored by chatterer because he does not touch the box or get involved right until later and again, I think Matt is kind of a cop-out. Like, it's such like a, oh, yeah, we'll just kill him because we need a motivation type thing. There's no setup to it. There's no reason for it. I think the reason is that they give us is really weak. He's a, yeah, he's a bit of a woman in the freezer, you know? Yeah, it sucks, dude. I hate it so much. Little details I liked about the movie, and you mentioned this before, is Voight, how he had built that, like, the house looks really incredible, I think. Yeah. Which is why I want to know more about it, because that is the first time we get good lore building from these writers, but we don't get any fucking detail, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It feels frustrating to me. Like, the only feeling I get is that these are people who don't care, who are just making something because they have the money for it. In their defense, God, what a high bar that you've been given and you've been told, you know, you're going to write the next Hellraiser movie. What, what, what an impossible I will thing. out of spite. If, if someone had like offered me that, I'd throw up in my lap, you know, because, you know, there's fans like you. And I mean that in the most positive way, right? People who are passionate and love this story. But it's not even that. Like, there's such basic mistakes and such 
basic lack of attention to develop a backstory for a character that is the main motivation for why this shit is happening, aka Roland Voigt, Mm -hmm. is an easy thing that is clearly missing. You know, that's not a fan giving them a high bar. That is somebody who is fundamentally not meeting the basic requirements for creating a baddie in a movie. To your point, more of him would have been good. And seeing him as like the the puppet master pulling all the strings would have made it more interesting. I completely agree. It's not as if that's not happening in the story. We're just not seeing most of it. I also don't like the fact that you have to sacrifice people to get there. Like it. Well, it's just a twist on the original concept, right? Because yeah, in the original movie. It would only make sense in Voight's case, because if you're power hungry, you will kill people. Like it makes sense in Julia's case. It makes sense in the doctor's case, because these are both people who are fundamentally perverted in a way that makes them evil now, right? Right. Like, there is a reason Julia kills. There is a reason she sacrifices people. It is because of her love for Frank. And she is initially hesitant, but then we see him control her, and we see those really nice low-angle shots of him with power, and then especially sexual power over her when we see her about to fuck Larry, and then he stands over her and has such control over her sexuality that it makes her cry. Oh, yes. What a great scene. And we see the shift in her power because we get her standing like a specter in a 30s film with her eyes shrouded in shadow Mm -hmm. to show that she has become a darker character. Great stuff. We love character development. I don't see character development in in Hellraiser 2022. Like Riley kind of, we get kind of the like, I reject you. Well, you know, Riley's kind of heavy handed, kind of like, you know, what are the dangers of pleasure seeking thing? It's such a slasher pacing and slasher motivation and slasher character that it really sucks. It just feels flat. It doesn't feel like Hellraiser. So yeah, Hellraiser, you would not say is a slasher movie, but no, it is lumped into that 80s slasher group like the one I mentioned earlier, all the time. Is it? I've always thought of it closer to like the thing. Well, yeah, of course. Like I know, I know you Like creature horror. Sure. But I think I'm sure you've seen a million times like someone make a roster and it's Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Pinhead. He's in that group. Mm -hmm. He is associated with that 80s slasher thing, right? Whether or not Hellraiser is a slasher movie is not important. I mean, only in the sense that he is a priest of the Leviathan that causes physical and emotional and sensational pain. (laughs) But like, motivation-wise, origin-wise, I would not say that the Cenobites are akin to the supernatural slashers, you know? like Oh, I completely agree with you. But yeah, no, I'm not saying that you don't. I'm yeah. just like thinking through it. Yeah. That's what 2022 turns them into is something more akin to like Freddy Krueger or the Poltergeist or like Jason Voorhees, right? But like later Jason Voorhees, because the original Jason Voorhees isn't the actual slasher, but you know. Right. Of course. Jason's mom. Yeah. Common. Yeah. Um, we love an evil mom. Oh, the best. <laughs> Can we do Psycho again? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we still need to do the sequels, so we should. Oh my God, we do. (laughs) God, yeah. Hellraiser is such a fun movie. And it's a classic for a reason. Clive Barker is obviously a master of his craft. If you haven't read uh, to those listening and you you don't know a lot of Clive Barker, 
his prose is fucking incredible. His Books of Blood collection. Yeah, he wrote the books that inspired the movies for Nightbreed and Candyman. So Right. Also, if you've never seen it, Bradley Cooper's breakout film, Midnight Meat Train. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. I don't know if a lot of people know about it, but like, you know, that was like early in Bradley Cooper's career. Oh, that's a good one. We should do an episode on that. A great. Well, I don't know if that's a great adaptation. The story is incredible. Uh, no, the, the, Barker's a great writer. Um, and if you haven't read The Hellbound Heart, I would, if you're really into the lore and descriptive writing and sort of details that are lost in the movies, I would also read that. Like what I was saying before, so the sacrifice angle mm. to me doesn't make sense because every sacrifice set up in Barker's lore comes with purpose. Julia has to kill people right. for Frank. The doctor has to kill people to revive Julia. This is just like, oh, Box just randomly kills. If you're going to do that, I need Voight to be the reason because he's the one with the intent to summon the order. He's the one with the motivation to kill. He should be killing with the motivation to access the Cenobites, not the Cenobites should be killing people randomly and taking blood sacrifices. Yes, they love torturing mortals because that is part of their religious sect, whatever. And it's not love, they're apathetic to it. No, right. It's, they have that like cosmic indifference, you know? It is the equivalent, because it's a religious perversion, as one would pray to an angel for a blessing, one summons the order of the Gash to bestow blessings from the Leviathan. And in this case, that is sort of super mortal. I wouldn't say immortal or like anything, but like something above what is mortal. Right. And the powers that come with that and the sensations and life that comes with that, right? So they bestow inhuman blessings upon people, but people go into this with a Christian idea of a blessing and not a monkey's paw idea of a blessing. <laughs> right. They're essentially giving people what they want, like a monkey's paw does, but subverting it in a way that mortals are too egocentric right. and blinded to understand, which is a part of the religious order. They give you that newfound knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much complexity lacking there. And it, it, I really, I would not even count this as a part of the Hellraiser series. And like, granted, I have not seen all the sequels because I really like one and two. So I typically just like, I think I watched three and four and didn't really like it as much. And then like, didn't watch the rest. I will watch all of them just so I can make a more definitive opinion on all of them. But like, I wouldn't count this as a part of the series. Sure. So here's my question to you is that it, like, I know we're getting into like this deeper lore of the series, right? Do you feel that the first movie, the original Hellraiser, do you get a sense of all that? The lore behind the Order of the Gash. Do you get that in the original movie? I think it's hinted at in a way that works for the movie. I think the dialogue given to the Cenobites mm -hmm. by Barker presents them in the way that they're presented in the book without right. giving you more exposition because, again, it's a movie. The Leviathan is more explored in Hellbound. The writers in Hellbound must have consulted with Barker because the Leviathan and the other world and mm -hmm. the Cenobites are still something I would imagine Barker would be endorsing. Yeah. I do also, the, the labyrinth in the other world, uh, like the hellscape, also reminds me of labyrinth. Sorry, just going to throw that in there. <laughs> so Hellbound, and, and we'll get to this when we do an episode on Hellbound, because clearly we have to. 
And yes. Hellbound, this, you know, Clyde Barker is credited with a story by. So clearly. Yep. He well, he's credited as story by in everything that's Hellraiser. No, not necessarily. Does no, he is. Oh, he in is? Every, he has a credit in every single one oh, for wow. story by because story he wrote by. Hellbound Heart. Oh, he's yeah. got a killer agent. <laughs> no, he yeah, does. Um, but like, for him. but the, the sequel came so soon after, I think that it would make sense that he would have collaborated more with the writers and be consulted at least, you know, Sure. because the, the story makes sense in that world to me. If we get into two, we can get more into the Leviathan lore. Mm-hmm. And then if we do two, then I'll also be able to reread the book in more depth and revisit a lot more lore right and then maybe we can actually do the comics too because then we'll have more time oh i'd love to so like you i haven't read the comics and that's something i'd love to get into yeah i've i've heard about them for years i have read stuff about the comics for years and i have not managed to find a place to get them which is a big reason why because they're they're rare they go for a lot of money as sets right it's the way things are personally i just don't read a lot of comics based on movies like I've heard the Alien comics are pretty good. There, that there's some good runs, but uh, like I'm not gonna read like Batman versus Predator. You know, that doesn't appeal to me. Terminator versus Batman. I don't know. I don't know. Not for me. Well, you know, as you said, this is this is the movie you've seen most. Yeah, but you know, not even just for the lore, but particularly just for the practical effects, which is another thing that I was really yeah. disappointed to, about in this movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, I get it. CGI is easier, probably, but like you had a team of modern special effects artists and designers that did a fantastic job. Like I follow their work for other reasons. And the only reason I kind of know about them is because they happen to post things. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I'm really happy about this really skilled people. And then their work just doesn't really get to shine. And that really makes me sad. And it's like the same reason that I was really upset with Del Toro's scary stories. Like we got all these really cool practical effects that got taken over by fucking CGI and looked like shit. Yeah. Like, it sucks. There's so much visceral horror that comes with the actual textures and pliability of makeup that makes that so much more real. CGI takes you out of it and looks fake and moves weirdly and unnaturally and, like, makes things look stupid. I couldn't agree with you more. It's so much more interesting to me when a horror movie has a lower budget and people have to use practical effects to elicit the same scare and, and feeling and emotion. Mm-hmm. It's more art to me. Well, it is art. That's not to say that computer-generated uh, images aren't art, because they are. And they take a lot of hard work. And I know people who work in that field, and they're super talented and like great artists. Yeah, no. But there are places where they make sense, and this is not one of them. Precisely. Some other notes I have as I go through, um, I said, honestly, I think this movie could be improved if we didn't know anything initially, except that Matt was somehow taken to the other world via Voight, and then Rye learns of the box, and then steals it to save him. What if Matt was the guy in the beginning scene, you know? What if the, yeah, that would make more sense the because then was the guy in the beginning, right? Because then we'd have an immediate motivation to a learn about the lore and b learn about the box, and then we could be put in the same way that we were put in Julia's shoes, learning about the lore in Hellraiser One. We could be put in Rai's shoes and learn about the lore as she learns, right? Yeah, that would be a much more effective way of doing things. Additionally, I really don't like the fact that they made Matt a fucking Uncle Frank character because they very specifically allude to him. By the way, he says, bring me back and appears as a skinless human being, Mm -hmm. right? 
that implies that he is trying to escape. But at the same time, that's never addressed. Man, I have so many all caps that just disintegrate into rage typing <laughs> in this. Just like Trump <laughs> tweeting about about Hellraiser. Yeah, but luckily I'm I'm not I'm not Trump. You're not you're hopefully. not you're not the worst person in the world. Yeah. I support trans actors being in, yeah, <laughs> in movies. I make a lot of notes saying that there's a lot of filler dialogue that should have been cut because there's no fucking reason this movie had to be two fucking hours. Yeah. We had a really cohesive story in 90 minutes the first time, right? Like, and the second movie too. It's part of what's so nice about the first two movies is how lean they are. Movies should just generally, I think, be shorter. Yeah, you get stronger products. I'm all about a long movie, but most movies, I think particularly horror movies, could be shorter. Unless there's a reason for it, but in this case, there clearly is not. Right. There are ways that this should have been re-edited. And there's like things that I know, like that one part where the roommate says something and they goes, I don't know what she said, but she spoke clearly. Fucking hate that. I will say that one of the things I really, really loved in this movie is when they're driving with the roommate in the van and we see that seamless transition to hell where the roads don't make sense anymore. That was really good. I really liked that. There are a few gems that should have been expanded on and they just really made it seem like they had like one or two good ideas and then otherwise didn't care. And that that makes me really sad. Yeah. It's not the Hellraiser we wanted. Oh, and then there's also these little things of convenience like when Voight in the wall suddenly has the puzzle box uh-huh. how did he get it are there multiple doesn't seem like it but like last time we saw it was with Rai and they're in a different room and then suddenly he has it but there's no way that he could have gotten it uh-huh. little like weird plot pushing inconsistencies that feel sloppy like the the very first opening scene with the money never really comes up again so that's kind of sloppy to me oh i did say that i really like the sound design of the new cenobite that like wheezes the asphyx yes that was cool yeah and to your point earlier again cenobites they look cool except for the latexy quality of the texture of their costumes yeah the costumes are imaginative and cool and dark fucking cool concept art. I have no problem with them being redesigned if it works. I think there are things that don't work here that I have criticized. Right. Um, but generally, the only people that I have a big love for right now in this movie are the artists. Uh-huh. I think I think that is the best thing to come out of this. But the only thing I'm not like super in love with is that the asphyx kind of turned into just a silent hill character <laughs> where it, it like just has like the staggering mindlessness yeah of a silent hill monster and then can randomly run at you no. to attack you that's not how cenobites work right. i'm sorry they're not in a rush there's no rush here they have all the time in the fucking world you know as it is <laughs> literally said in acknowledged in the lore of this movie they gain power through the mastery of anguish. Like, that's a cool line. I appreciated that a lot because, like, at least they understand that aspect of the Cenobites, clearly. Uh But, like, they just don't demonstrate that they know that. Are very serene, apathetic workers. And I'm not getting that from a lot of these. They're very intelligent. They are superhuman. They're not human anymore. They're twisted human analogs i guess right because they were human but the same way that sins in christian mythology kind of turn you into a sense of other and angels 
being perverted, turned into demons, right? It's like the same thing. You lose your humanity and you become this other. Yeah. And you still retain your complexity and intelligence, but that's not, that's being lost here. Yeah. I have yet another note about the blomps. I swear to God, if I hear another blomp, I'm going to go crazy. I, like It's such a stupid thing to add. To me, that suggests that your sound designer has no fucking clue what they're doing. Because they don't know how to build an atmosphere. Do we have any good reviews of this movie that we can read? The first one I see is pretty close to how I feel. They say, not sure exactly how I feel about this installment. I think they took us too far behind the curtain by making the Cenobites too relatable and likable. Which is... Not something I would say. I don't think it's behind the curtain at all. I think they just distort Cenobites. Sure. Um, they say that Jamie Clayton was brilliant and elegant and probably my favorite character. The humans were tolerable. By the end, I was almost rooting for the Cenobites. Uh, I was rooting <laughs> Although, for the Cenobites <laughs> the whole fucking time. <laughs> Although I will say I like the performance of Odessa. I also, I think she was the most competent actress. Yeah. I love this episode mostly because you're a super fan of this and I love talking to passionate people and you're obviously super passionate about this. And I'm glad we got to talk about something you loved and then something you hated <laughs> with, <laughs> with equal measure passion. Well, I just love talking about the making of these types of movies because of how much skill and thought went into it. You know, yeah. that's what really makes movies for me. Those are the reasons I like things. It could be a shitty movie it could be campy it could be just stupid and if i can see how much work went into it then i appreciate it you know yes but i'm glad that you're here to be sort of the more modern horror expert because i was not aware of the other work that these writers did some great stuff really and and same with david bruckner same with the director he directed Nighthouse. We should watch it to give them a fair chance on our podcast. Yeah, I'd love to. And Super Dark Times, the screenwriters wrote that movie. That's a great movie about a dark teenage accident. We got lots of stuff to, to defend these dudes with. But I do agree with you. When I turned the Hellraiser 2022 off, it looked great, wasn't blown away. And frankly, wasn't really scared. You didn't get that sense of like existential dread. Oh, I can't believe I didn't even talk about this. To, to just end this out, talk about being scared. Fucking Uncle Frank's come to daddy lines. Horrible. Get me every time. I will. I have thrown up twice. This is the only thing in a horror movie that has ever affected me. Yeah. Imagine your uncle coming on to you and then killing your father, skinning him, wearing his skin, Tell, saying you must make your daddy proud after saying come to daddy and making that weird and then trying to kill you and then making it sexual and then saying come to and then that end scene where he's being torn apart and he licks his lips looks into the camera and says jesus, jesus wept, wept. <laughs> oh man dude that that echoed in my mind for like a year the first time i watched it oh. what a fucking memorable ending right and just such visceral practical effects when his face is being stretched. Oh, Wow. There's a reason that nearly 40 years on, we're still talking about this movie, right? It's, it's And like, still re-watching it. Yeah, and it's, it's brilliant. It's <laughs> phenomenal. The original, 87 Hellraiser. Excellent movie. So good. The new one, mm. <laughs> I like to try and speak good of everything I see. And to your point, 
the artistry in that movie is pretty stellar. Yeah. I like to be fairly critical and I like to mention things I think are good, which I hope I have conveyed. And I really hope that we get to do future episodes where I can once again manically spout my love for other Hellraiser movies. Absolutely. Well, I'll get more educated on my Hellraiser so I can... Watch Labyrinth. I don't know if I will. (laughs) Don't watch it because it's Labyrinth. Watch it because Jim Henson's puppetry is in it. Ah, so that's a good reason to watch anything. Yeah, I'm down with that. And then tell me if it changes how you see the practical effects in Hellraiser. Will do. Yeah. All right, Maya. This has been fun. Yeah, nice to talk about it with you. Always. See you next time. See ya. Infinite Horrors Magazine is a full-color, ad-free print magazine from the creators of Infinite Worlds. You can get your signed and hand-numbered direct edition copy of Infinite Horrors Number 1 plus Infinite Horrors merch at infinitehorrorsmagazine.com. You can also get the newsstand edition at exaltedfuneral.com. Be sure to check out the Infinite Worlds podcast, as well as the Infinite Worlds magazines. Find us on social media at Infinite Horrors Magazine or Infinite Worlds Magazine. Also, feel free to visit infinitehorrorsmagazine.com or infiniteworldsmagazine.com. And you can follow me online on Instagram at heavy underscore metal underscore fruit. And you can follow me on Instagram at horrorsamw. Thanks for listening.